Good morning, New Hope Church. Been waiting a long time to say that to you face to face. Glad that you're here. <laughs> and, and welcome if you're watching through virtual church, maybe you just can't be here yet. We certainly understand that. Glad that we have the technology available for you to join us. And we've been doing that for 14 weeks now, so you're probably kind of accustomed to that. Some people in the nine o'clock service are telling me how they really enjoyed watching church in their pajamas over the last 14 weeks. So I get that. I get that. I understand that. But welcome. Glad that you're here on Father's Day, live and in person or, or virtual, however you choose to do it. Um, it's a chance to dive into John chapter 5, so I'm going to ask you to do that. We're going to talk about being God-focused this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. Maybe you have it electronically or you have a hard copy. I'm going to turn your attention to a couple things. While you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you want to pick it up that way, we'll mail it to you. Uh, the parable series starts next week, again, section three, and you can pick up a copy of this for free. They're out there in the table in the atrium, so be sure and grab one so you have it with you to read through, and you'll be able to follow along that way. If you're watching virtually and you want, we'll mail it to you. If you email us or give us a phone call, we'll be happy to send it out to you. So John chapter five, and um, we're not gonna start with that particular verse first. Just hold your finger there. And we're going to take a look at a verse that might be a little more familiar to you from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you eat or whatever you do or whatever you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Most, most people here this morning know that verse. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, familiar to you? I'm thinking about the eating part this week when I was writing that verse down. How many people here are feeling the quarantine 15, right? Maybe that phrase is new to you. It means you added 15 pounds during the quarantine. Or maybe you're feeling the quarantine 20 this morning. Scripture says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I know it's a familiar passage. I know many people who are in church know that. It's good to be reminded of it because it centers us it takes us to this place that we're going to look at this morning, the, the focus of what we're going to put our energy into. Let's translate it this way. Put it in modern day language. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, let's substitute it with whenever you wear a mask, whenever you go through the grocery store and you have to stay six feet apart from people. When you come to church and you have to spread way out. If you're watching online, people are really spread out here. It, it's not normal, right? It's not what we're accustomed to. It's not what we're used to. But whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. So I'm asking for new hope's sake that we really are gracious towards each other during this period of time, especially on the masks, no masks thing. It's such a short period of time that we have to do these things. This last week, my mind went to churches in China. And in China, they can't even sing if they're a Bible church. They can't sing out loud for fear of arrest. And so they, they meet in basements of people's homes. And they can't sing out loud, so they literally mouth the words to each other. Think of this with amazing grace. To have to whisper amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Because for them, it's a lifetime thing. They can be thrown in prison. They could be killed for their faith. 
for us, we get to gather like this. Thank God for virtual church that we have the tools and the technology. And by the way, how about that technology team? How amazing are they? Between the worship team and the technology team that we were able to do what we did over the last 14 weeks is just a a real compliment to the caliber of people that are part of New Hope. And I'm glad that we get to do this together. So whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, You might think on Dad's Day that what I'm going to do is I'm going to point the New Hope men towards how to be better dads and how to be better husbands. Well, you'd be correct indirectly. We're going we're gonna to get there on that component. And for those whose dads are still alive on this planet, we have a mandate from Scripture. Scripture teaches you've got to be honoring towards your father. It actually includes a promise when you're honoring towards your father. Look with me on the screen at this, Ephesians 6, 2, and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Paul adds that commentary in there in, in parentheses because he's quoting the Old Testament. And he says that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And this reality that a Christian father is a powerful instrument in the hand of God. Those are all true statements, everything we just talked about. All true, but at the core of it. What is it that makes a better dad? What is it that makes a better father? What is it that makes a better husband, a better friend, a better employee? Well, it all starts with being a better Christ follower. It all starts with actually pointing towards God. So I'm going to be pointing y'all, not just the men, but the women. I'm going to be pointing us all towards being more God-focused this morning, and I'm going to ask you to examine yourself to see if your life reflects the imprint of your daddy on you. Before we do any of that, I'm going to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I I thank you for those who are watching virtually and for those who are live in the auditorium. Every single person here is a precious life to you. And I pray that right now you would focus us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be focused on you, that you would illuminate the text in such a way that you would cause us to not be unchanged, but rather be changed. That we would take one more step into the likeness of Christ, that our maturity level will increase this morning. For those who may not be in relationship with you yet, Father, God, I I pray, I plead that you would use your word to draw them in. So God, cause your word to come alive. That's what we're asking for. We ask for that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. My parents kept a magnifying glass in the top drawer of their dresser. It was in the top drawer of their dresser for a reason because my mom had seen her firstborn son use it in a way that he wasn't supposed to. I discovered that, I was the firstborn son by the way, Uh, I, I discovered at a fairly young age that a magnifying glass, when you properly tilt the angle in an inverted position and use the power of the sun, you can turn these puppies into a laser beam and you can light things on fire. And so I discovered at a very young age that, and kids don't mimic me on this, it's not a good thing, all right? But just hear this out. I discovered that you can, you can set pieces of paper on fire and you can set pieces of wood on fire, all depending on how you angle the lens. But little boys get really tired with pieces of paper and pieces of wood. And so they start finding ants and spiders to light up. Guys can relate to that. I know the girls can't. And pretty soon you get bored with that. 
and you start finding firecrackers that you can light with that laser beam. Ah, not so good. And then not before long, you call your little brother over and tell him to hold his hand still. And thus, the magnifying glass in the top drawer of my parents' dresser. Because we weren't supposed to get it out with permission. We had to have mom's permission to get it out in order to use it the way that it was supposed to be used. My mom passed into eternity in 2007. The, the very year, the very week that we launched New Hope. We agreed to launch New Hope on Tuesday. My mom passed away on Saturday at a relatively young age. And then five years later, my dad passed away. And when they had both passed, I remember saying to Lori, I'm an orphan. And her response was, well, you're not an orphan. And I said, well, yeah, technically, I'm an orphan. And in that moment, I heard the words coming out of my mouth. And I know what was going on. I was grieving the loss. But the significance of what I just said didn't really impact me until seasons began to roll past. And enough birthdays came and went and enough anniversaries and enough family gatherings and you begin really sensing the loss. So days like today on Father's Day, you really begin to appreciate the absence of the imprint of those individuals. The relationship was gone, but the imprint remains of what they put on my life. So when days like today arrive, the absence of a parent is really magnified and the focus of the lens is now turned towards my behavior and physically, I can see remnants of my dad and myself, and I especially can see it in my siblings, and I point it out to them. And, and they like to say, no, what you see is not right. But, you know, we do that with each other as siblings. But where I really see it is in behavior. Certain behaviors that are imprints of what my parents placed on me. And that's inevitable, that your parent is going to do that, especially the behaviors over the course of my life, I've learned that the power of focus can be so intense that what I choose to magnify through that lens really determines an outcome. David uses the word magnify this way in Psalm 34. I want you to see it. Look with me on the screen. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now inherent in that verse is this reality. You can choose to put the magnifying lens on God or you can choose to put it on something else. You can choose to magnify whatever it is is the focus of your life. David says, let's magnify the Lord together. This is a choice you consciously make. With your life, you're gonna magnify the thing that you value. Now, David, over the course of his life, found himself putting too much energy into the wrong thing. And so he comes to Psalm 34 and he says, let's magnify the Lord. Let's exalt his name together. Look with me on the screen, or maybe you have your notes this morning. Perhaps you've downloaded them at home. It's the word gadol. And gadol, this Hebrew word, is not just talking about the magnification of a lens. It's talk about using your mind. In your mind, make it this thing in your mind large. What do you honor in your mind? What is it that you give magnitude to? He goes on to amplify it this way with this very deliberate Hebrew word. What is high in your life? What is long in your life? What is wide in your life? You look at that definition and you see those words in there. What are you making loud? 
So let me ask you this morning. With your life, what are you making high? What are you making long? What are you making loud? Where is your energy focused? I'll ask it this way. What do you lift up with your time? What do you boast of with your mouth? What do you magnify with your energy? What are you making large with your money? Those are questions for us to analyze ourselves. Now, as you might expect, Jesus is the ultimate example of these things that we're talking about in the way that he magnifies God the Father. So that's why I've asked you to go to John 5, because in John 5, you find a perfect story for this. So I'm, I want to dive into the pool of John here with you and just explain to you the background real quickly, because we can't hit all the verses. Here's what's going on. You have a man who was either born paralyzed or he became a cripple through an injury, through an accident. But for 38 years, the scriptures tell us, this one who's paralyzed has been seeking to be healed and he finds himself at this pool. Apparently, he's been laying at a pool for years and years and years and years. In some versions of the Bible, it says in John chapter 5, verse 4, that the angel of the Lord stirred the waters. It looks like that might have been commentary that was added by a later writer and put in a footnote and eventually got translated over into the Bible. And so verse 4 has been removed from a lot of the copies of the Bible. Maybe your copy has it still in it. But what we know is where we pick up in verse 5, that Jesus shows up on the scene. It says this in verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, that passage alone in itself would just be fascinating to really dig into, but that's not the one we're going to develop this morning. What's being developed here is the last part of verse 9. Verse 9, part B, look with me on the screen. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. There's a reason John listed that. That's really the heart of what's going on here. Verse 10, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Verse 11, but he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? Let me fill in what's going on here because between these next few verses before we get down to verse 15, there's an absence of Jesus. Jesus disappears into a big crowd. There's a lot of people there, and they can't find him, and they, this man who's been healed doesn't even know who Jesus is, and so the Jews come asking, who did this? And he says, I don't know. I don't even know his name. So they go on a search, and they go looking for Jesus. Ultimately, they find him. So watch now as verse 15 develops. It says, that man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He finds Jesus in the temple. Jesus actually finds him keeps going. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, most unusual response from Jesus. Maybe you've read this story for a long time. You're wondering, why did he say this? Watch his response. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Right away, we see that in Jesus' world, every day is Father's Day. He focuses people constantly on the Father. The primary focus for Jesus is on God. 
It's at the center of all of his activities. He's doing what his father does. Uh, if you're new to church, may, maybe through watching online, you become new to church. A lot of people are joining into New Hope, watching over the last 14 weeks. If you're new to church, you might be confused by why in the world the leadership of Israel would be angry about Jesus healing this man. What's going on here? Why would the leadership be ticked at him? And they're not only angry at him for violating Shabbat, and that's the reason they're angry, they're furious that he claims this relationship of a co-relationship with his father. Now understand this, this is the background, this will help make sense of this, why they're so angry. Overshadowing Israel at this period of time is the observance of Shabbat for one particular reason. It's central to the life of the first century people living in Israel. So significant that a major portion of the Mishnah is dedicating on how to keep it. Here's the thought. If the nation of Israel, if the people of the nation could keep just one Sabbath perfectly, their thought is that it would usher in the arrival of the Messiah. So they're constantly, as a nation, focused on that. They want to keep one perfect, just no one violate any of the rules, and then Messiah will arrive. But obviously, Jesus was not playing that game with them. He's seen as being totally unconcerned for these rules. And the rules that they had developed were a complete misunderstanding of God's design for the Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't intended to get God's approval. It was intended for man to be refreshed. It was a gift from God to humans. This is what Jesus says in Mark 2.27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath meaning the intent behind it, is that you would honor God and that humans would be refreshed, a benefit to people. And even more important is verse 28 in Mark chapter two. Keep going from verse 27. It says this, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus approaches this. If anyone has the right to act against Sabbath law, Jesus is saying, it's me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can do these things. Now, maybe as a church person, you've tripped over the thought that in the Old Testament, God says to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and you've wondered, why is Jesus doing this on Sabbath days? I mean, there's like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Couldn't he have healed the guy on Monday? Why does Jesus show up at that day and go out of his way to heal the man on the Sabbath? What's going on there? Well, think of it this way. Think of when you come to an accident scene and you're, you're at the four corners where a stoplight normally allows people to move and flow. And there's red and green lights. And usually the red light tells you to stop and the green light says you can move on through the intersection. But as you pull up, there's a traffic cop there. And at the accident scene, the traffic cop is paying no attention whatsoever to the light above him. He's telling people with a red light to keep moving through the intersection. Well, the greater authority has arrived on the scene. The greater authority is in charge. That's the police officer at the accident scene. That's one way of looking at this and understanding what's going on here, but here's another component of it. Old Testament law prohibited working on the Sabbath, but it never specified what kind of work. It seems like employment's in view. So if you made your living as a carpenter and you worked construction all throughout the week on Saturday, Shabbat, Saturday, you wouldn't do construction. You would stop and rest. It's, it seems that the law is actually geared towards employment. 
So Israel was to take a breather and to set aside and do other things to refresh themselves. Enjoy some rest. It's good for your soul. But by the first century, rabbinic tradition had added 39 new laws on top of God's law from the Old Testament. Humans are really good at adding laws on top of laws, aren't we? We can get one law published 50 years ago as legislation and how many laws are added to it after that to really clarify what the law is actually supposed to say. See, it's for violation of rabbinic law, not biblical law, it's for violation of rabbinic law that the Jewish leaders confront the man who's been healed and ultimately confront Jesus. And so they're indignant. It's the Sabbath. You can't be carrying your pallet. Check what's going on here, church. Instead of celebrating that he's healed, they rebuke him for breaking the rules because they're more concerned with legalism than the man's well-being. So this is the demand. Who would dare have the audacity to break a rabbinic law of the Sabbath? Tell us who he is. They want to go after Jesus. Well, the man who's part of this story, because he's caught in the act, shows that he doesn't really have a lot of courage. Leon Morris actually said this. You see his quote on the screen. He says, this man was not the stuff of which heroes are made. Yep, that's right. He's just trying to find somebody to be a scapegoat and take the blame because he doesn't want to get in trouble with the, with the leaders of Israel. Now, when they finally find Jesus, he has this most unusual response for them. I, I told you in verse 17, look at it one more time. Jesus' response is, my father's working, and I myself am working. He's saying, I only do what my father does. Now, if they're simply misunderstanding what's being stated by Jesus, Jesus could take this moment and say, wait, wait, you misunderstand. I'm not saying that I'm God, but he doesn't do that because they understand exactly what Jesus is stating He's saying the Father and I are one. We act alike. We have the same purposes. So instead of denying the accusation, he validates their observation, and then he amplifies it. Watch where he goes in verse 18. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God, Today, if someone made this claim and you were in relationship with them, you might suggest they go for a mental exam. You might say, you think you're God, you need to go see a psychologist. Who would dare claim that? Who would make that statement? But the evidence is Jesus is deadly serious. When he makes this statement, he knows exactly what he's saying, so he simply states the facts, and he makes the case, as you're going to see in verse 19, so that everyone will know he is in the likeness of God. Dr. Barclay was reading this passage, and he had this observation. I want you to see his quote. This is, and he's speaking of Jesus here. This is an act of the most extraordinary and unique courage. To speak like this was to court death. It is his claim to be king. He knew well that those who listened to words like this had only two alternatives. The listener must either accept Jesus as the son of God or he must hate him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy him. I want you to check this. 
with Jesus' entire life, with all of his daily actions. He lays out the case and he makes the case so strong that his actions will be correctly understood so that it only leaves one of two choices. You must either accept him as being of God or reject him as being of God. That his actions were completely unmistakable. Is that true in your life? What do you choose to magnify? To the degree that people outside of your social circle and within your social circle, can they identify who you belong to? There's no mistaking who the Father is in Jesus' life. He would never act any way other than this. To the degree that when they try to stone him, Jesus says to them, for which of the things that I've done are you stoning me? And they say, for none of those things, but because you claim to be God. Or what about this exchange with Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes to him, John chapter 3. You see this conversation taking place in the evening. Look with me on the screen at chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus sits on the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court. He says, even the Supreme Court knows that you've come from God. We know who you are because the things that Jesus does with his daily activities are so obvious, no one can mistake him because it's impossible for a lion to act like a rabbit. You have to be what you are. It's impossible for Jesus to act in any way that is not like his father. Because a person who belongs to their father is going to behave like their father to some degree. Whom you belong to determines a great deal who you act like. And I'm not talking about biologically. Biologically, that's true. You're going to have a physical imprint upon you. I'm talking about behavior. Let me amplify this. It's kind of a long illustration, so just bear with me. Three chapters later in John chapter 8... Jesus heals somebody else, and the leadership of Israel comes against him again and begins saying they want to kill him. Watch the dialogue with me that Jesus has with these individuals from John chapter 8. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. In other words, if you, you belong to him, why aren't you acting like him? Watch verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man whom has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. He's not talking about biologically. He's talking about behavior. They have said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He's amplifying the very thing that we're talking about. Who you focus on, who you put the magnifying lens on, that's what's going to be reflected in your life. In our text today in John chapter 5, getting back into this portion here in verse 19, what Jesus does is he powers up the magnifying lens 
And he focuses it on this issue. And he speaks of how this is the identifier of who you really belong to. What are you doing with your life and your daily activities? Look with me at verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. If you have the imprint of your father on you, you're going to carry out the daily actions that reflect that reality. Jesus is saying, I know who I belong to. I'm just doing the things that the father does. And I'm asking us, is that true of us? If you have the imprint of the father on you, you're going to carry out the daily actions that reflect that reality. Now, it's absolutely fascinating to me when I study the first century and I see the way the Jews looked at God the Father. They treat him completely differently than what you and I do today and the way that you look at him. In contrast to the Jews, their collective view of God was on a nationalistic reference. They looked at him as God the Father, distantly removed yet caring for them as a nation of people, but not with this personal thought of, our father. They, when they said that, they did it very, very rarely. Jesus calls God his own father. Example for that is in verse 19 when he says, my father is doing the same thing I'm doing. I've already said to you that the Jews are in distress because Jesus is speaking like God. He's acting like God. He's working the works of God. And now he's saying the works I've done, these are the works my father has done. He creates, I create. He restores, I restore. My father works, I work. In other words, we're the same. So like the father works, Jesus works even on Shabbat. He does the works of God. He speaks consistent with God. So what you find in verse 19 is Jesus is taking the witness stand. And he's saying, you want to see who I belong to? And he becomes forceful and emphatic, and he wants them to understand. He wants us to understand, so it's not vague. Watch verse 19 again. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. Coming into a landing here. Wrapping this up and hear how emphatic Jesus is. Truly, truly, it's the most emphatic way you could get people's attention. It's like saying, pay attention. Will you hear me on this? You heard me correctly. I swear to you, what you hear is the truth. Develop this. The Sabbath healing of the paralytic man by the side of the pool, it's already linked him. It's already tied him directly to the Father. And can we just say how amazing that is that he healed a man who was completely paralyzed after 38 years? He didn't just heal the nerves and give the man movement in his legs again. The guy is up and walking, meaning muscle structures restored. He's able to pick up a pallet and carry it and then walk back into the temple and look for Jesus as though nothing had ever happened to him. He's completely restored. But they're looking completely beyond that. 
Jesus' activities parallel the Father. He says, whatever the Father does, I do this in like manner because there's this absolute unity of essence because when they are one, you see Jesus, you see God, you see the activity. The Father loves the Son, the Son he shows the Son all that he's doing. All this is to amplify this point. Jesus has completely changed the way that we see God the Father. And because you live in the 21st century, you're not even aware of it. This isn't the way the rest of the ancient world looked at God the Father. He's changed the way we view the Father God. I told you the Jews saw God collectively, nationalistically as the Father, the one who's distant from us, but think about how Jesus taught you to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. There's pater there. It's the root of the word patriarch, or papa, or pa, pater, daddy, father, God, personal relationship. Look it up in the Greek language, you'll find it's an intimate expression. See, he calls God my father, and he taught you and I, we're the sons and daughters of Father God. But he didn't stop there. He began modeling what it looks like when you're actually in relationship with that one. Now, this last part is especially relevant for you. If you don't have an earthly father, you'd want to model your life after. And if that's true of you, I need to speak to that. If you have an earthly father, you don't want to model your life after, and it messes with your mind to think of the word father, just hear me out on this. Lori and I served at Youth Haven Ranch for 15 years. And we had lots of boys and girls whom we worked with who were from broken homes. And many of them didn't even know their biological father. There was a biological father, but they didn't know him. They weren't in relationship with him. And so there was an absence of the biological father, but there was an absence of the presence of any imprint on them. They couldn't rectify in their mind the thought of a father. And many of them had had horrid experiences God overrides that issue. What this passage is telling you is whatever you've lost, if you choose to amplify that thing with the magnifying glass, if you choose to magnify in your life that you've got that issue where you didn't have a father, that's what you're going to live in. If that's you, if that's your issue this morning, you have a true father relationship. You have the ultimate father relationship. God the Father And you can look to him for your model. So this morning, can you look at your spiritual life and see a resemblance of the family? Can you see that your life is imprinted by your heavenly father? Does it reflect the things that we're told that Jesus did here? Here's an easy way for you to compare it. In the story, the healed man, he chose to magnify the very issue that was going on in his life, his circumstances. He goes to the pool every day. He invests hours every day waiting for somebody to put him in the pool. We're told 38 years go by. That's what he's magnifying. In the case of the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, they're magnifying the fact that legalism has been broken. The rules have been violated, and so they choose to magnify that. But Jesus, in this exact same story, takes all of those same elements And he chooses to magnify the Father. God turns the lens on God. 
See, it's all in what you choose to put the focus on. What are you putting the lens on in your life? What do you lift up with your time? What do you boast of with your mouth? What do you magnify with your energy? What are you making large with your money this morning? So scripture comes full 360 degree all the way back around to where we just started at when it closes this way, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And in doing that, you put God on display. Amen? Amen. It's the truth of scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we close in prayer because we, we beg you, we beseech, we ask that you go beyond our human tendencies to forget. We could hit lunch this afternoon and be eating a hot dog or a hamburg and completely forget about the things that we've just looked at in your word. And it's very likely by Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it can be a distant memory. So Father, I ask that you would take these things that you've just now imprinted us with and let it resonate through our life this week. We would be pleased with that. If we could just retain it for seven days. God, I ask that you would use this in our life, that we would put you on display. As we sang with the worship team, that we would take a stand, and our stand would choose to magnify you with arms high and hearts abandoned, God, that you would be made glorious in our life. We pray for that. We ask for that. In the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.